So as they uh, finish taking up the offering, let me just uh, remind you of what we've been up to and what we've been doing here um, during this series. Uh, We've been reading the Old Testament book of Ruth um, during Advent this year. And maybe uh, if you've been here the last few weeks, you've wondered why, because it doesn't really seem like the kind of story that usually gets told or read or or explored um, at this time of year in church. But um, it really is an Advent story. Uh, Because remember, Advent isn't necessarily about the joy of Christmas and Christmas morning and gifts and and even remembering um, Jesus and all those things. It's really about waiting for the joy of Christmas, longing for the joy of Christmas, hoping for the joy of Christmas. And if there's any story in the Bible that's about waiting and longing and hoping for things to change, for things to get better, it's the story of Ruth. Because if if you haven't been here, um, I'll just give you a quick summary. Uh, In the very first chapter, it starts off, and it's about these two women named Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And they're traveling back to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem. And they faced so much um, pain and tragedy and suffering in their lives. Uh, Both of their husbands have died, so they're widows. Um, Naomi's sons have died. One of her sons married uh, Ruth while they were living in Moab, but her husband, Ruth's husband, died. So both of Naomi's sons died. For 10 years, Ruth was married to her husband, and they couldn't have any children. Um, So that must have been a source of deep pain and suffering for them before he died. So they travel back to Bethlehem to try to make things work. Um, I say back to Bethlehem for Naomi. It's a new place for Ruth. She's from Moab. She doesn't speak the language, so she's going to be a foreigner in Bethlehem. She's going to be like an immigrant or refugee there. They're poor. Um, they're basically um, have just gone through setback after setback in their lives. And so they're longing for things to be different. They're waiting for God to intervene. And they sort of still believe in God, but Naomi's pretty bitter about it because she feels like God has done all of these horrible things in her life. And maybe she's been praying about things to change and nothing has changed. There's a lot of hope that they've dished out and they haven't received much back to show for it. Now, um, one day... The Ruth goes out to their poor and they don't really have anything. So Ruth goes to pick some scraps up in this field and she meets the man who owns the field. He's a wealthy man. His name is Boaz. And he ends up being very generous and very kind to her. And he gives her food and he says, you can continue to pick up grain in my field. And it helps. It's a short-term help for them, but it's not really a long-term fix. Because remember, they don't have any husbands, they don't have any children, they don't have any source of income, they don't really have any land or ability to raise food on their own. Her um, Naomi's husband had some land, but it's being taken away. They're having to sell it probably to creditors, almost like a foreclosure situation because they just can't afford to have it anymore. And so one day Naomi comes up with this plan. Um, She knows they've got to figure out a long-term solution in their lives. And it turns out that this man named Boaz is a distant relative of her husband who had passed away. And there are these laws. We looked at this last week. There are these laws in Israel that say that when you fall on hard times, that relatives can come in and help you out. Especially if you're about to lose a piece of land or you have to sell a piece of land. A relative can come in and act as what's called a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer and can buy that land for you so that you don't have to sell it, so that it doesn't go out of the family, so it continues to be passed along into the family. 
But that's also going to be a problem because there's really no one to pass it to because it gets passed through the male line in the family. And there's no husbands left. And Ruth isn't married, so there's no son or husband or they don't have sons to pass it along to. So Naomi comes up with this plan. Maybe we'll go to Boaz. And Ruth, here's what you need to do. You should ask Boaz to marry you. And that way, he can become your husband. He can provide for you. Maybe he can redeem the land. Maybe he can redeem you. Maybe he can redeem us. Maybe he can give us the long-term future that we've been longing and hoping for. And Ruth is bold. She goes and does this. And it's this crazy plan. And amazingly, Boaz says, yes, I want to help. I'll do whatever it takes. But there's a problem. I'm not the closest relative There's another relative, and according to the laws of Israel, it would be his right and his responsibility to redeem your land and to redeem you and to redeem our family. I just can't do it. That's like another setback and another loss to mourn in their lives. And that's where we pick up the story today. Boaz went straight to the town gate where official business happened and took his place there. Before long, the closer relative, the one mentioned earlier by Boaz, strolled by. Hey there, old friend, said Boaz. Take a seat. The man sat down. Boaz then gathered uh, ten of the town elders together and said, Sit down here with us. We've got some business to take care of. And they sat down. Boaz then said to his relative, the piece of property that belonged to our relative Elimelech is being sold by his widow Naomi, who has just returned from the country of Moab. I thought you ought to know about it. Buy it back if you want it. You can make it official in the presence of those sitting here and before the town elders. You have first redeemer rights. If you don't want it, tell me so I'll know where I stand. You're first in line to do this and I'm next after you. The man answered, I'll buy it. Then Boaz added, you realize, don't you, that when you buy the field from Naomi, you also get Ruth, the Moabite immigrant, the widow of our dead relative, along with the Redeemer responsibility to have children with her to carry on the family inheritance with the family land. Then the relative said, oh, I can't do that. I jeopardize my own family's inheritance. You go ahead and buy it. You can have my rights. I can't do it. In the olden times in Israel, this is how they handled official business regarding matters of property and inheritance. A man would take off his sandal and give it to the other person. This was the same as the official seal or personal signature in Israel. So when Boaz's redeemer relative said, go ahead and buy it, he signed the deal by taking off his sandal. Boaz then addressed the elders and all the people in the town square that day. You are witnesses today that I have brought from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech and Kilian and Malone, including responsibility for Ruth the Moabite immigrant, the widow of Malone. I'll take her as my wife and keep the name of the deceased alive along with his inheritance. The memory and reputation of the deceased is not going to disappear out of this family or from his hometown. To all this, you are witnesses this very day. 
All the people in the town square that day backing up the elders said, yes, we are witnesses. May Yahweh God make this woman who is coming into your household like Rachel and Leah, the two women who built the family of Israel. May Yahweh God make you a pillar in Ephrathah and famous in Bethlehem. With the children Yahweh God gives you from this young woman, may your family rival the family of Perez, the son Tamar, born to Judah. Thanks, Kelsey, for reading that. Now, that's not the end of the story. Uh, There's a little more left, and we're going to read the end next week, and there's actually a surprise ending. Um, So you can't go out of town until after Sunday afternoon, next Sunday, and uh, you need to be here uh, for church because we're going to talk about the surprise ending and how it really brings everything together. Um, But today, here's what I want to do. I want to revisit this part of the story. We're not going to reread all of it. We're just going to look at a few parts of it, and I want to highlight a few things because I think, um, I've sort of made it simple, I think there's three things we can learn from this part of the story. I think there's three ways that, that God wants to challenge us and maybe even encourage us um, in some unique ways. So uh, here's the three things I want you to consider. Um, Number one, and I I didn't put these on the screen, but it might be good to write these down. We give you a little bulletin every week. And on the front of that, we try to leave it open and it says sermon notes because we encourage you, write things down that you feel like God may be speaking to you or saying to you while you're here at church. And it can be related to the sermon. It might be totally unrelated to the sermon, Um, but it's something to take home with you and sort of process throughout the rest of the week. But here's the first thing I would love for you to write down and it's this. God is working in the details of our lives. God is working in the details of our lives. And it's not always obvious, but his hand is at work if we have the eyes to see it. Let me reread the first verse of this chapter again. This is what it says in chapter four, verse one. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and he sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. And Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. And so he went over and sat down. In other words, it just so happened that the very next morning after he had met with Ruth and Ruth had asked him to take care of her and he had said, I'm willing to do it, but I can't because there's a closer relative. It just so happened that he went into town the next morning and he was at the town gate. This is like the entrance to the town, but it's where all the official business was done. It was be like our town hall or our city official buildings. So whenever uh, land was sold or legal things or transactions or financial transactions took place in the village, they tapped right here at the town gate. So Boaz happened to be there at the town gate and the other elders of the town were there and they were doing business and all the official stuff. And it just so happened at that moment that this other man who was the closer relative, who had the right or responsibility to potentially be the guardian redeemer happened to be walking by. Now, is this a coincidence? I don't think it is. Because we've seen this already happen before in the story. Do you remember uh, when um, Ruth first went to the fields uh, back in chapter two? This is what it says. I want to read this verse for you again. Back in chapter two, verse three, it said, so Ruth went out and she entered a field and she began to glean behind the harvesters. This is where she was just looking for food and grain. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. 
Now, is this a coincidence as well? Did she just happen to go to this place? And it's almost as if that's what the narrator wants us to think. And he uses this interesting turn of phrase in Hebrew. Um, it's highlighted there, which, which just means it, it just happened by chance, or it chanced by chance, or it just so happened, or we might say in, our, in English, um, as luck would have it. As it turned out, she just found herself the one day that she went to look for food and she just happened to pick this field and it happened to be the field that belonged to this man who happened to be a distant relative of Naomi's, who happened to be generous and kind and compassionate. And it's almost like the narrator doesn't want to come right out and say it, but wants to leave space in the story, wants us, as we're reading it generations later, to read between the lines and to be able to see that these things happening in Ruth's life weren't just happening by chance. They weren't just coincidences. It wasn't just blind luck. But that God was working. Behind the scenes, God was orchestrating events. Behind the scenes, God was doing something. And if there's anything I think we can learn from the story, it's that there aren't any coincidences. God is working behind the scenes. Things don't happen by chance in our lives. <laughs> that God works in the details of our lives just like he did in theirs. And it's not always explicit and it's not always obvious and you don't always hear God's voice, right? I've never heard God like call out in a audible, loud voice, this is what you should do or, or anything. It doesn't happen that sort of way. I guess for some people it does, but that's not usually how it happens. God doesn't speak in those sort of ways, but that doesn't mean he's not involved. And that doesn't mean he's not working. And that can be really hard to see when things aren't going so well, right? When you have a bad week, when you have a bad month, when you're underwater financially and trying to figure out how to get out of it, when you've lost your job, when there's a conflict in your family, when one of your friends at school sort of stabs you in the back or betrays you, when, when things aren't going right, it's easy to think, God doesn't care, Nothing's going right in my life. Like, and I've prayed about it maybe, or I've told him, like, this is horrible. Can he change this? And nothing seems to be changing. It's easy to think God doesn't care. God's not involved. Or maybe he's just not even there. And we start to live our lives as if he's not even there. And we can come to conclusions almost like Naomi did, that it's not only that God doesn't care, it's almost like he's working against me. He's not doing anything for me. But the story of Naomi and Ruth seems to say the opposite. It seems to say that, no, God does care. And that he did hear all of their prayers. And he did know the longings of their heart. And he did see the pain and suffering that they were going through. And even in these chance encounters, in these random things that started happening, God was doing something behind the scenes. He was still at work. And so I think it should lead us to ask, do we see God at work in our lives in the same way? I mean, are you willing to go to bed tonight and maybe just spend a couple minutes before you go to bed, lay in bed and just think, how are you working in the details of my life today, God? Like, well, what, what was something that maybe you were doing today that, that I would just be tempted to just pass right through and think, well, that was just a normal detail, but you were working in that. 
Would you be willing to go to work tomorrow or to school tomorrow or running errands or whatever it is you're going to do tomorrow and stop and think before you go about your day doing all your, your things, think, maybe I'll meet someone today. Maybe I'll have a conversation today. Maybe there'll be something that takes place today. Maybe it'll appear like a, just a normal detail of everyday life to everyone else, but it might be something that you're working in to bring about something in my life, to do something significant in my life. If only I have the eyes open to see it or I'm paying attention to it. I think that's the perspective Boaz had. After all that day, this poor woman, refugee, immigrant, just showed up in his field, just like any other poor person, to glean, to take some of the leftover scraps. And yet he saw her as different and he thought, maybe God wants me to care for her or show her compassion in a way that's not normal. And then that day he shows up at the town gate and it just happens to be this closer redeemer, guardian redeemer comes along after he said, and he must be thinking, there's something in this. God is doing something here and I need to see this as an opportunity for him at work. You see, God is at work in the details of our lives. Do you have your eyes open to see it? Now, there's another thing I want to impress upon you or something that I think we can learn from this story. But let me tell the rest of the story a little bit because the story goes on and uh, Boaz confronts this man, right? And um, he explains to him that Naomi has lost her husband and this was probably common knowledge and she's in the process of losing her land. Maybe she's already lost it. Maybe she's having to sell it. Maybe she lost it when she first got back or it was gone and the bank or the people, the creditors are finally uh, foreclosing on it. Um, But she has no way to keep it. She has no way to buy it back and she has no sons or anything to inherit it. And so according to the laws of Israel, Boaz sort of says to this man, you could redeem this land. You could redeem this land and help out the family so that it'll stay in the family and they'll have some sort of future. And the man looks back apparently at Boaz and says, sure, I'll do it. Maybe he's a wealthy man like Boaz. Maybe he's got plenty of money and it's not gonna be that difficult for him to do it. Maybe it'll even curry a little bit of favor, a little bit of honor in the rest of the village. Everyone will talk about this amazing thing that he did for this poor woman. And so he says, sure, I'll do it. But then this is where Boaz's character shines through because he realizes what's at stake is not just a piece of property. What's at stake is not just a piece of land. Boaz is able to see that God is in the process of doing something bigger. And it's not just about this land. It's about people. And it's about their lives. And it's about their future. And God doesn't want to just redeem a piece of land. He wants to redeem Ruth. And he wants to redeem Naomi. And he wants to redeem their future. And so he says in the next verse, this is, I'll read this one. It says in verse 5, He says back to the man, then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. Remember, that's how she's described. She's just a foreigner, right? And everyone would know that. You acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So Boaz puts the man on the spot right there at the town gate. All the elders are watching. They're doing the official business. And he basically says, look, it's not just about the land. It's about the whole family. 
And so you need to take this land and you need to redeem it. But you're also, if you're doing that, you're putting yourself on the line to redeem Ruth the Moabite as well. You need to take her and you need to marry her. And remember, we read some laws about that last week. But you need to marry her as well. And then you need to have sons with her so that she has a line and sons and people to pass on this land and this inheritance too. Now, I don't think Boaz is being deceptive. I don't think he's trying to mislead or, or con the man. I think he's just trying to say, here it all is. Here's the responsibility that you're undertaking if you're going to do this. Because Boaz wants to make sure that they're taken care of, that Ruth and Naomi are actually cared and provided for. And so he puts it all on the table and he basically says in the presence of all these elders, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to redeem not only land, but to take Ruth as your wife and to have sons with her? And the man, at this point, basically counts the cost and he concludes that he can't do it. He doesn't want to do it. Because there's going to be a huge cost. I mean, there's the cost of the land, which it sounds like he was willing to pay to begin with, but now he has to take care of these two women, He has to take care of Naomi. He's going to have to take care of Ruth. He has to marry her. He needs to have sons with her. And suddenly, when he has sons, that means, especially if he was wealthy, he had a large inheritance, he's going to have to divide his inheritance, not just to the sons he currently has, but to any future sons as well that he has with Ruth. And he starts sort of doing all the calculations. And that's a pretty big responsibility. Like, it's not just about land. You get the woman, too, you know? Wait a second. And he basically says, no, I'm not interested in doing that. And and I want to pause and think, like, how many of us might have responded in the same way as this man? You see, I, I want to help people if that means doing something easy to help them, right? Like, if somebody is hurting or they're in a difficult situation and I can write a check and just hand it to them, you know, uh, that, that won't be that difficult for me, that's the kind of help I want to provide. If there's an easy solution or an easy fix, that's the kind of involvement that I want to have in people's difficulties or in their problems. But most people's problems don't have short-term fixes, Right? And most of our problems are messy and they're difficult and they require time and investment and compassion. And ultimately, to get involved and help people through difficult seasons in their lives, it usually requires sacrifice. And I think that's the second thing that we can learn from this story is that God's not just at work in the details of our lives. He's also at work in the sacrifices that we're willing to make. And Boaz is willing to make a huge sacrifice here. This man wasn't willing to make it, right? And if this man was their only hope but a future and a life, then they wouldn't have had the future and the life because this man wasn't willing to make the sacrifice. But Boaz steps in. And Boaz says, I'll make the sacrifice. You're not willing to do it. You're not willing to pay the cost. I'll make the sacrifice. I'll pay the cost. I'll give the long-term commitment to not just help with this piece of land, but to help with their lives, to care for them, to provide for them, to rescue them, to redeem them. So God works through Boaz's sacrifice. But here's one third thing that I think we can see God working through. And maybe this is the most important one 
So I want to spend just a little bit of time on it because this story isn't just about a couple of people who lived some 3,100 years ago in ancient Israel. I mean, it is, and it's this fascinating story. But the story of Ruth is really just the story of the entire Bible. It's just a summary of the entire story of the Bible. And what we see is that God doesn't just work in the details of our lives and God doesn't just work through sacrifices we're willing to make. God is also working for the sake of our redemption. That's what he's always up to and that's what he's always doing. He's working for the sake of your redemption and my redemption. Now this word redemption is interesting. It's a very churchy religious word, right? And uh, I, I think we use it a lot in church and we use it a lot in sort of religious or Christian circles. And I think we tend to think of redemption in a specific and certain way. And so um, I looked it up and I wanna give you a couple of definitions. Here's the first definition, we'll put it on the screen. This was the really, literally the first definition that showed up on my Macintosh when I plugged it into the Mac widget. It said this, redemption is the action of saving or being saved from sin. And what that means really simply, and many of us have learned this in church all of our lives, is that we have sinned against God, not just once, but a bunch of times. We have sin in our lives, and that creates a debt between us and God. And God comes in and he pays that debt himself. And so doing, he saves us from that debt. He redeems us by paying that debt himself, himself. And whether you fully believe that or not, that's really what the New Testament teaches. That's at the heart of what the Bible teaches about redemption. But sometimes I think we make the mistake and think about redemption solely in these terms. And the story of the Bible and the story of Ruth teaches us there's actually a bigger understanding and a broader understanding of redemption. So let me give you the second definition that I found for the word redemption. We'll put that one on the screen as well. It's the recovery of something that was lost. Redemption is not only the action of being saved from our sin, but it's the recovery of something that was lost. And you think about Ruth and Naomi's story and think about how much they lost. They lost their land. They lost their social standing in society, right? They had lost their husbands. They lost their sons, for Ruth, she couldn't have children for 10 years. Maybe she lost the dream of having children. And as a result of all of that, they lost all these very tangible things, but they probably lost some deep internal things. Probably lost their self-worth. They lost their sense of identity. They certainly lost joy. And probably at some point they lost hope. And maybe you're here today and your situation isn't as dire as theirs, but I wonder if anyone here today can identify with part of that, right? Or you've lost something recently, or you've lost a loved one recently, or maybe you've lost a job recently, or maybe you've lost your reputation recently, or maybe on the outside everything looks really good and you've got a smile on your face and you're blessed and all those things, but deep down inside, you've lost your sense of self-worth. Or you've lost your own sense of identity. Or there's not much hope 
or there's not much joy and you're just going through the motions. You're sort of making it work each day and you're going to work and you're punching your card and you're doing all the things that are required of you. But the word that would be used to describe you and your internal state of being is not joy and it's not hope. Maybe you've wanted something to change in your life for a long time and it hasn't. Maybe you've prayed for it for years. Maybe like Ruth and Naomi. And you're just about ready to give up. It just feels like you're fighting a losing battle. And you know what you need? And you know what I need when I'm in those places? We need redemption. That's what we need. We need God's redemption in our lives. And you see, redemption isn't just dealing with my sin or my selfish desires. It's, that's part of it, right? That's a big part of it. And sometimes that's the hardest part to even admit. But redemption is also dealing with and handing over to God all those things that we feel like we've lost and that we've given up on and we don't know what to do with and we don't know how we'll ever get them back. <laughs> God doesn't want to just redeem your sin or your selfishness. I think like Ruth's story, he wants to redeem your self-worth and he wants to redeem your identity and he wants to redeem your joy and he wants to redeem your peace and he wants to redeem your hope. And he wants to redeem all those things in our lives, not because we've earned it, not because we've prayed really hard, not because we've done anything to deserve it. He wants to do that just because he loves us unconditionally like his beloved children and he feels the pain that we feel when we go through difficult times and he wants to see us have worth and hope and joy again and that doesn't mean he'll take away all the problems or solve them really really quickly but it does mean that in the midst of those things we can look to him to be our redeemer and that's what christmas is all about right That's what Advent is all about. It's about waiting for and longing for and hoping for a redeemer. And Jesus shows up to be that. And I love what he says. So at Christmas, we celebrate Jesus becoming to be a little baby, and then he grows up, and the next sort of stories we get in his life are him teaching, right? He's this grown man, and he starts going around teaching and preaching. And the very first sermon, the very first thing that he says is this. It's found in the book of Luke. I just want to read this for you. He says, and he's actually quoting from Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery or redemption of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, whatever you've lost in your life, whether it's physical loss or spiritual loss or emotional loss, I have come to bring redemption and to bring hope and to bring new life into your life. And so here's the question I wanna close with this morning. Is Jesus your redeemer today? Like today? Is he your redeemer? And if we put that, um, let's put that definition back up there. Look at the first part. 
Let's start with that. And I'll be as simple and straightforward as possible. Is this the way Jesus is your redeemer? Have you trusted in him to save you from your sin? And maybe you've been following Jesus for a while. A Christian is just someone who follows Jesus. And you could be young, you could be you know, middle school or high school or college, you could be an old adult. But at some point you come to a place where you realize Jesus isn't just a cool guy and he's not just really nice and loving and he's not just a good teacher and he didn't just start a big movement that changed the world. He's my redeemer. And I have this debt, this sin, and I'm never going to change it or redeem it or save it or rescue it or recover it or deal with it myself. And so more than anything else, I want to trust him to be my redeemer. And that's not hard to do. It's literally just deciding I want to accept that he's my redeemer. And you can do that in your heart today. And then you can go home and you can tell someone about it. You can tell your parents or you can tell me or you can tell some friends. Like today, I've been following Jesus for a while, but something changed because today I just decided once and for all, he's not just somebody to follow. He's my redeemer. You can do that. And you can even celebrate it in a few moments when we take communion together. Now, Maybe you're here and the second part of the definition applies to you a little bit more. What have you lost in your life recently? What is it that you need Jesus to redeem? What kind of hope or joy or faith have you lost? That this Advent for the next eight or nine days until we celebrate Christmas morning, can you just say, I'm clinging to this sense of longing and hoping and praying because I need you. I, I, you re, you've redeemed me from my sin. I came to grips with that a long time ago, but I still need you to be my redeemer. And I love what Job says in the book of Job. Job has all these horrible things happen. And you read, the book of Job is really long. And you read, and he's just wrestling with why all this horrible stuff is happening and why he keeps losing everything in life. And in the middle of that, in chapter 29, in the middle of this book, he says, there's one thing I know for sure, and that's that my Redeemer lives. And I can't count on much else right now. And everything else has been thrown around in my life and removed from me. But that's the one thing I can count on, that God is my redeemer and I know he lives. And I'm gonna keep believing and trusting in that. And maybe that's what you just need to do today. What is it that you've lost? I need to keep holding on to faith. And in this season of Advent, say, I'm gonna trust that he will come and redeem that in my life. You see God's working in the details. He's working, whether you see it or not. He works through our sacrifice and more importantly, through his son's sacrifice. And he's always, always working for the sake of our redemption. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord God, <clears throat> Help us to just remember your love for us this morning. And when you see us, you see your sons and daughters. Sometimes you have pity because we're going through such difficult things in our lives. You have compassion, you have love, and grace. 
you see us the way Boaz saw Ruth in that field, doing her best? No, and even her best wasn't enough. She needed somebody to save her and redeem her. Thank you for seeing us with that kind of love. And help us to just remember that and embrace that this morning. Pray this in your name. Amen.